Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Drive Nation podcast. We're now on episode four. Um, I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Dan. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Now, it's for a very sad reason that Andrew and I are sitting down to record this podcast today. Uh, That is the passing of the incomparable Sir Sterling Moss. He died on Easter Sunday morning at the age of 90. A sad reason indeed, but I don't think that word will describe the tone of this podcast because this will be a celebration of everything that he achieved in a racing car and, what's more, of the man he was outside of one. Andrew, we'll talk at length about his career and him as a person. But before that, we should say now that Sir Sterling Moss was not only a hero to you, but also a friend. Can you tell us how you got to know him? Yeah, he was. I mean, geez, there there are so many things that I have over the years had cause to feel lucky about for being in this business. But um, there can't be many, if any, which have made me feel more fortunate than to be able to say that, I mean, to this day, decades after I first met him, to say that Sterling was my friend. Um, you know, we went to each other's birthday parties. Um, you know, um, we, we hung out together. Um, he was an enormous help to me in my career when I was editing Motorsport magazine. We used to we used to just dig out old pictures from archives with nothing on the back end. There'd just be a collection of racing drivers and none of us knew who they were. So we'd just fax them across to Sterling. Um, and he'd just come back with sort of line-by-line line details and everybody in them. And he it was never too much trouble. Um, he was always a great friend to me professionally. And, and over the years, um, that friendship became a, a personal friendship. I mean, to be honest with you, the first time I met him, I think it was in about 95, I went down to chase the Millimilia. Um, and he was in his old 300 SLR Mercedes um, driving like, um, well, Sterling Moss, really. And I can remember he came past me once, just going at an amazing speed and trying to keep up with him. I think I was in a Porsche 968 Cabrio and just having no chance at all and being so impressed. But then um, there was some stop and we had to queue up to get our food somewhere. And there was a big long queue. And, and Sterling had many, many qualities, but patience was, was, was never high up that list. And I can just remember him just being this brooding, bad-tempered person. And it was one of those sort of, you know, do you really want to meet your heroes moments? And I really questioned whether this had been the moment where, you know, the image I had of my hero was about to be shattered before me. It was only later on that I discovered that he was, you know, quite a shy person um, and and so utterly different uh, in private to how, um, you know, I saw him there uh, in public sitting in a queue somewhere in Italy. 
an enormous privilege just to have met the guy, but to have become his friend, that's extraordinary. Um, and I think that's why this is going to be actually a very personal tribute from you to him in this episode. Um, we'll come back to that and talk about that in much more detail later on. But to get us started, I want to go right the way back to the start, which was September 17th, 1929, when Sterling Moss was born in London. Um, his father was Alfred Moss, a London dentist, and he, actually I didn't realise this Andrew until, until I started doing some background reading for this episode, but his father was an amateur racing driver himself, um, finished 16th in the Indy 500 in 1924. Yeah, I mean that's, I mean, that's what a thing to grow up with, you know, dad did the Indy, I mean what a thing to be, uh, yeah, and, and, and Alfred's role in, uh, in Sterling's life really cannot be underestimated um you know there are lots of parents who quite understandably particularly back then weren't at all keen for their children to go racing because of the enormous risks um that they faced but um you know really right up until um he got really until he got snapped up by mercedes in the in the mid 1950s you know um sterling often had to race his own cars um and often had to do that with the support of his family um, and you know, and, and Alfred was w- w- was always there to provide that support. Um, yeah, he was uh, he was a fairly uh, impressive figure in his own right. Mother was Eileen, um, and she competed as well, actually, in hill climbs. So racing very much in Sterling's blood, uh, just as it was in his younger sisters. Pat Moss, of course, a hugely successful rally driver herself. Um, now Sterling began racing um, in 1948 and raced professionally until 62 he started in a 500cc formula 3 cooper Um, it was in 1950 at just 20 years of age that he won a major international race for the first time the rac tourist trophy at dundrod in northern ireland in a jaguar xk 120 he made his f1 debut the following year Um, now andrew we'll look at his career stats in a moment but let's ask the big question here and now just how good was this guy it's 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 difficult, isn't it? You know, there are lots of people, and I'm probably one of them, who say you can never compare drivers across the eras. You could never compare Sterling to to Senna or to Lewis um, because the machinery was so different, um, the environments were so different. I, I think all you can say is that of all the racing drivers there have ever been, he was one of the very best. Um, he's also one of the people who just shows how ridiculous statistics are you know this is a man who not only never won a formula one world championship he never even won a more despite countless attempts um and so if you just go by the sort of you know the headlines i mean he never did the indy 500 um he you know, he, he wouldn't figure very high up at all but you know you ask anybody who knows anything about this game um to name certainly their top 10 and you know he he would not only be in there but i would think on most people's list he'd be on the top in, in, in the top half of it he was not just extraordinarily quick. Um, where I thought he was very different was that, unlike a lot of racing drivers, he was incredibly versatile too. You mm. know, stick him in a, in a in a sports car, a Formula One car, a rally car, a saloon car, tin top, um, and he was just. I mean, it didn't matter to him. He was he was just quick. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's look at the the stats themselves, but we'll also look beyond the stats. So, as you said, no F one championships. Um, He won 16 F1 Grand Prix, which is a good haul of race wins. But he did it in only 66 starts, which gives him almost a 25% winning ratio. That's very nearly a match for Ayrton Senna's. 
Um, and now if we apply that winning ratio to a modern Formula One career, you know, a, a driver nowadays might start 200 races, maybe even 300 races. Sterling Moss would have been looking at 50, 60 plus race wins comparable with Vettel, Prost, the biggest names in the game. Um, it's instructive as well to look at who has fewer F1 wins than Moss has. Uh, one behind him with 15 race wins is Jensen Button, of course, the 2009 world champion. Behind Button, you've got Jack Brabham, a triple champion. And then behind Brabham, you've got three double champions, Graham Hill, Emerson Fittipaldi and Alberto Ascari. Moss won more races than all of those guys. So for Moss, perhaps more than anybody else ever to have stepped into a racing car, the raw numbers do his genius at the wheel no justice whatsoever. There is one other thing I would stick in there, and having said that the statistics prove nothing, there is one particular Moss stat which I, which I do like. Because cars broke a lot back then, um, mm. particularly cars that Sterling drove, um, for a couple of reasons, um, if you take out all his retirements and just look at the races that he actually finished, he won 56% of them, which meant that if Sterling finished a race, the chances were the best you could hope to do was come second. Incredible, isn't it, really? Wow, that's a great stat. That really does give you a good picture of what a, a fearsome and uh, dominant competitor he was in a racing car. Um, yeah. So no F1 titles, Andrew, but how close did he come? Uh, well, he came second four times. Um, mm. The closest he came uh, was in 1958, um, when he really should have been the Formula One world champion. Mike Hawthorne, as many will recall, won it, um, and he won it... Um, like very few other Formula One world champions, he won it with just a single victory throughout the course of the year, whereas Sterling, in the same year, won four races. The difference was that um, Mike Hawthorne was in a Ferrari, which was not any very quick car, it was also an extremely reliable car. And Sterling, preferring to race British cars, Coopers and Van Walls, um, was often let down by his machinery. Um, but really, um, he took the title away from himself that year. Um, if anybody has read the post on Drive Nation, I have mentioned this on there. But in 1958, uh, at the Portuguese Grand Prix, uh, Mike Hawthorne was disqualified from that race because he spun the car uh, and reversed back up the track. And it came to appeal and Sterling spoke in his rival's defence at the appeal and said that far from being on the track, he was actually on the pavement at the time, which wasn't part of the racetrack. Therefore, he hadn't reversed up the track. Therefore, he shouldn't be disqualified. His points should be reinstated. He, Hawthorne got his points back. He came second in that race. And at the end of the season, Sterling lost that title to Mike Hawthorne by a single point. So really, it was his, his sporting principles that meant he was never an F1 world champion rather than anything else. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine Sebastian going to Lewis's <laughs> appeal and saying, no, you've got to reinstate this guy because he was on the pavement at the time? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's not really something you can, uh, you can envisage these days. I'm not sure we have those characters in Formula One anymore. Um, Andrew, you spoke about Sterling Moss being a very adaptable driver. Um, he raced at Le Mans several times. Um, he never really had the same level of success there. No, he didn't. Um, he never liked the race. Um, he, he, to be honest, he didn't really regard it as a race um, because he couldn't go flat out. Um, and in, in Sterling's mind, if you were managing the machinery, um, then you, know, you, weren't, um, you weren't racing. And so he always regarded it as something that he kind of had to do. Um, he would have won it, I think, uncert I think undoubtedly in 1955 um, when he was sharing with Fangio. I mean, what a 
driver lineup that was in the Mercedes Benz, the W196, had Mercedes not withdrawn um, the team after the terrible accident that befell Pierre Levesque and over 80 members of the um, of the crowd at the time. But he never did. Um, and, you know, he would often be, because he was so fast, he would often be the bloke that was sort of sent out to break the opposition. And they'd just go, whoever is racing with so they'd Sterling, just go out there and just drive the wheels off the thing. And, you know, and the opposition would have to follow because there was always a chance that his car would last and then you had to be there just in case it did. Um, and, you know, many of the time, 1959 in particular, um, when Aston Martin won Le Mans, where they deliberately gave Sterling a car which they knew had a weak engine in it. They, it was a car with four main bearings instead of seven. So that meant less internal friction, but more likely that it was going to break. And his job was to go out and break the Ferraris. Um, and they regarded the car as semi-expendable. Um, and he went out, he drove like the wind, um, did indeed do all the damage to the Ferraris that um, was expected of him. And although he retired and um, Carol Shelby and Roy Salvadori went on to win the race, uh, John Wire, the team manager, said, you know, quite clearly that you cannot underestimate Sterling's role in that victory. What do we think, Andrew, was his greatest race? Is, is, it, is it possible that his greatest race was outside of Formula One? Well, he always said that it was. Um, he always said that it was the Miller Miller in 55. Um, I, don't, I think lots of people listening to this will know all about him and Dennis Jenkinson and the, you know, the bog roll pace notes and, um, and how they drove the 922 miles from Brescia to Rome and back in 10 hours and a few minutes at an average of almost 100 miles an hour. Um, he always said that was his greatest race. It was an astonishing feat. Um, he, after the race, he, he went to the victory party and after that drove back to Stuttgart. Um, which is just, you know, I mean, I, I've sort of done the Miller Miller, the sort of modern parade cavalcade re- retrospective event they have these days. Um, and I've done it over three and over four days. Um, and that's exhausting. It really is to drive a car when you're not racing it over those distances. And to think that he started at 22 minutes past seven in the morning and 10 hours later was back again. Um, yeah, it absolutely befuddles my brain. But I mean, that, there are certainly other candidates um, for it. Um, there was the thousand Ks at the Nurburgring in 1959, where he was leading by a mile, had to let Jack Fairman drive the car for a bit. He binned it. Fairman somehow managed to lift the car back onto the track. Sterling got back into it miles behind everybody else and still managed to win. Um, he did a very similar thing at the TT that year at Goodwood um, when his car caught fire and he, they commandeered um, Carol Shelby's car and stuck Sterling in it and he drove through the field and won that. Uh, Monaco 61 in Rob Walker's um, Lotus 18 um, against massively more powerful, faster competitive Ferraris, held them off for the duration of the race. I think the one that people don't talk about so much which i've always been fascinated by as argentina in 1958 which was an immensely hot race um and he was in a cooper and uh he convinced everybody that he would change his tires and that his race halfway through the race as everybody had to uh, and that he had no chance of winning because the Coopers had four studs in each wheel, each which obviously needed undoing, and therefore his pit stop would take three minutes and all chances of, the, of the winning the race w- would go. And then he got Al Francis, his team manager, to hang out pit boards, counting him down to a pit stop, which he never intended to have. And mm. he did the entire <laughs> race on the same set of tyres and ended up literally with 
you know, tyres down to the canvas, bits of wire sticking out of them, um, and won that race, which was an incredible feat, not just of, of driving, but also of, you know, masterly tactics. How do we best describe his driving style then? I mean, was he flat out attack from uh, flag to flag, or was he, um, was there more sort of deftness in there? What, what were his sort of core attributes, do you think? I, I think this is the most interesting thing about Sterling. Um, because, as he would have told you himself, the truth about Sterling Moss, in which what it must have completely fried the brains of the opposition, was that he was rarely actually on his own personal limit. If you look at the accidents that he had, and goodness knows he had a few, I can't think of one which was down to Sterling overcooking it. Um, whereas if you look at the drivers, his contemporaries, who died in racing cars, so many of them died because they just drove too fast. Um, and made a mistake and it cost them their lives and Sterling just didn't do that and you know if you think you're out there chasing Sterling Moss and you are doing everything you can to keep up with this bloke but in the back of your mind you know he's not actually trying that hard he always left he's not always he said there were a few occasions when the situation did command a hundred percent but he he always regarded himself as a very safe driver because he always left himself that margin and yet, despite that, he was still just so other than the Fangio. He was just in a different league to anybody else out there. OK, interesting you mentioned Fangio. I know that you've spoken to a number of Moss's contemporaries about him. Um, so can you give us an idea of what kind of regard Sterling Moss was held in by the other guys that he raced against? Well, I mean, Fangio thought that Sterling was the greatest prospect he'd ever seen. Um, you know, Sterling in return, obviously, and, and you know, to... Um, the end of his life, Sterling always said that Fangio was the better driver, the greater driver. Um, and I guess you'd have to say that um, he has some reason for that, although Sterling was always better on a sports car than Fangio. Um, but everybody else just absolutely revered Sterling. And it was, you know, it was very, very difficult being Sterling's teammate for, for what I talked about earlier, because you knew he wasn't actually going quite as fast as he possibly could. Um but he also, you know, he went racing in the right way. That's what I love about Sterling. Um, you know, he was a person who was interested in the safety. He wasn't some lunatic. And yet, you know, he was completely against all the measures that were brought in to make circuits less interesting and safer. Because he just thought, you know, if you don't like it, don't do it. Um, and he was a sort of... And he was... The other thing about Sterling is, you know, there were, as there are now, there were drivers who don't drive in a correct way back then as, as there are today despite the fact that he went wheel to wheel with so many people in so many races over so many years I've never heard anyone say that Sterling cut them up chopped them up or did anything I've never heard anyone say that Sterling put a bad move on them which I think in a career like that is is just incredible do you think some of the the British greats that we we might discuss um Graham Hill and perhaps Jackie Stewart and some of these others. Do you think they they always considered Moss was the benchmark? I, it, it, without being able to talk to them, I mean, Jackie Stewart was on the um, was on the telly uh, yesterday, saying that Sterling was his hero. I mean, their careers, their Formula One careers, didn't quite overlap. They missed no. each other by a couple of years. You know, I know guys like Tony Brooks, who is you know who I absolutely um, revere as you know Britain's greatest you know, unsung racing driver of that era. Um, you know, he was always, as so many of them were, of the view that he was as good as anybody other than Sterling. 
and that on any day they, he could, they could beat any driver out there other than Sterling. And there was just this sort of acceptance that, you know, there was Sterling in his race and then there was the rest of you in another. Um, and, you know, Sterling could be in an uncompetitive car or Sterling's car could break. But if you had Sterling in a reliable competitive car, you know, that was it. You were going to come second at best. Andrew, Sterling Moss's racing career, his professional career at least, was brought to a premature end when in 1962 he had the mother of all crashes at Goodwood. Uh, what can you tell us about that and the effect of that accident? Um, yeah, it was uh, the Easter um, Goodwood meeting. Um, he was driving, I think, called a Lotus 1821. Uh, nobody knows why he went off um certainly not sterling who was never able to recall what happened i think the one thing that everybody has agreed on is that it was it was almost inconceivable that it could have been his fault um but whether he got pushed wide by another competitor or whether there was a mechanical failure on the car um the only fact that matters is that what matters is that he went into the bank on the left-hand side of the entry to the right that goes into st mary's um at about 120 miles an hour um and the car um, pen knifed um, around him, leaving him with, you know, quite a few broken limbs, but most significantly, um, you know, significant bang on the head, um, which put him in a coma for I think five or six weeks, um, and his life absolutely was in the balance um, for quite a long time, um, and yeah, when he um, when he came out of it, um, he he thought he'd never be able to to race again um but he didn't want to go um without knowing for sure so he went back to goodwood as soon as he was fit enough to drive a car um, and drove a thing called a lotus 19 which was a pretty little sports car and he did a test in the wet just a private test just him on the circuit by himself um and he spun the car coming out the chicane but not particularly not, not to any great consequence um, and what he found was that he could still lap the circuit, he could still put in competitive times, but it had become a mechanical process. He was having to try to spot braking points, try to remember where to turn in, um, you know, how to reapply the throttle. Um, it wasn't natural to him anymore. Um, and it always had been, you know, in the past, he'd, you know, he always used to talk about, you know, driving around the circuit at race speeds, waving to, spotting pretty girls in the crowd and waving to them. He he genuinely, in 1961, when he was racing Rob Walker's 250 short wheelbase Ferrari, you know, to his, I think, his seventh and final TT win. He won seven tourist trophies. Anyway, uh, he was listening to the radio. He was listening to Raymond Baxter commenting, commentating on the race he was winning. Um, he had so <laughs> much spare mental capacity that he could listen to the radio while driving away from some of the greatest drivers on earth. Um, mm. And I think he did end up bitterly regretting his decision after that test in that little Lotus to retire because he thought, and probably rightly, that if he'd given himself another six months to heal properly, um, then his brain would have been um, you know, in a much better position to... Uh, pick it all up again and you know and maybe he would have raced on maybe he would have won many more races maybe he would have won a world championship and indeed maybe he would not have made it to 90 years old who knows yeah if he'd been able to carry on after 62 perhaps he would have raced on into the late 60s maybe even the early 70s I know that he looked up to Fangio who was still racing 
um, at, at, at a good old age for a professional racing driver, well into his 40s, maybe his 50s? Yeah, so Fangio, Fangio yeah, Sterling was quite, always quite taken by the fact that Fangio's greatest race, you know, some would say the greatest race, Formula One race that was ever held was the German Grand Prix in 1957. It was Fangio's last win, but it was also his greatest race. Um, and he was 47 years old at the time. Um, and, you know, Sterling thought to himself, well, if Fangio can still be racing, um, and winning world championships at the age of 47 why not me and you know he was 32 at the time of the Gilbert accident and if you add 15 years to that you get to 1977 and what you are looking at is a you know frontline racing career um, that you know spans you know almost 30 years more to the point spans absolutely the most dangerous time there ever was to be racing cars and I think just on the maths alone the chances of you doing that amount of racing because you know don't forget you know he was racing he wasn't just racing you know formula one he was racing formula two and junior i mean he was right he did so many races every single year and the chances of something frankly terminal happening um in one of those races had he carried on for another 15 years i i think probably would have been quite high so maybe you know we wouldn't have you know got to know him at all yeah, so perhaps in some bizarre, strange way, that accident in 62 actually prolonged his life. Um, now, of course, that, that was the end of his professional racing career. But for decades after that, Moss was still seen racing really just for fun. Um, and that explains how, Andrew, you were able to meet him for the first time. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sterling, um, Sterling was always quite motivated by money, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, you know, you can, <laughs> understandably, you know, if Mercedes-Benz says to you, you know, come and drive 300 SLR around the Mille Miller course, um, you know, 20 years after you won it, uh, I mean, sorry, 40 years after you won it, which is how I caught up with him in 95, um, then, of course, you do. Um, but he did also do a huge amount of historic racing Um you know, literally just for the just for the fun of it, he uh, he owned a beautiful little car called an Oscar, O S C A, um, which he raced into his eighties and, and absolutely loved being in, um, and yeah, and so that meant um, that just a few of us idiots got the chance to be on the track at the same time as him. Yeah, and there was you have this incredible story, Andrew, where you found yourself. Um, on track at, at a Goodwood Revival uh, a few years ago, racing alongside this bloke called Sterling Moss. You have to tell us all about yeah, this. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it just, even now it just sounds like a dream, doesn't it? Um, it would have been in the early 2000s. Um, he would have been, I think he was 77. Um, so I would have been, you know, 40-ish. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm rather careful. I'm, I'm, I'm rather concerned that people are now going to think that I'm in any way comparing myself to Sterling Moss. And so just, just as a point of order, I am absolutely not. The point, you know, I think, think the, what you have to remember is that not only was he, you know, quite an old man even then, um, he was in a Lotus Cortina he'd never sat in before. Um, and I was in an Alpha GTA, which I'd been racing for a few seasons. So I knew it very well indeed. Um, and you know, so 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 there's that. Um, he was in a, in a car that was also, you know, not as competitive as the Alpha that I was in. So there's those three factors: the fact he didn't know the car, the fact that the car wasn't as quick as my car, and the fact that he was, you know, quite an old bloke even then. That all the I needed all those three factors just to level the playing field. 
Um, and then, yeah, although I did, I was in quite a large number of races with him. That's the only time I could, I could really say that we went wheel to wheel. Um, and we had, yeah, we had a good old ding dong. It was, um, you know, part of the problem was uh, I started off behind him uh, and I was able to stay with him, but I didn't really want to overtake it because I was just enjoying the view out too much. You know, to be able to, I mean, just to drive around Goodwood is a pretty fun thing to do. To chase Sterling Moss in a race when you are somehow where the dice have been loaded sufficiently so that they've rolled in your favour so you can actually keep up with the bloke. And I can remember him drifting this Lotus Cortina through Fordwater, which was a flat-out corner um, for both of us, but, you know, it was still taken with a bit of attitude. And just sitting there thinking, I'm watching, I have a front-row seat to watching Sterling Moss drift a Lotus Cortina through Fordwater at Goodwood. You know, the circuit where he had his first race, the circuit where he had the last race of his professional career. And, you know, and, and, for, for, and for a bloke like me, you know, it just doesn't get any better than that, except it did, because when the race was over, the thing I actually remember most was going down the Lavent straight on the warm down and him coming up beside me because he'd let me pass. He absolutely let me pass, which was the only reason I felt I, I, I finished ahead of him, because I think he'd looked in the mirror and just seen this idiot going at increasingly ridiculous angles in this alpha and thought, I better let the boy pass before he does something he's regretting. Um, and he came up alongside me and I looked over and I just saw this thumb in the air. And then was Sterling Moss giving me the thumbs up, the big yahoo, to say he'd had such a good time racing with me. And uh, wow. I don't know. I mean, honestly, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it brings tears of joy to my eye just, just, to, just to recall that, just to think that actually happened. Um, and yeah, to, to Sterling, it was, it was a nothing. It was just you know, one of probably thousands of races he did throughout his entire life, certainly many hundreds. To me... Greatest moment in a racing car, without any question at all. And it's even more extraordinary because he hung around to say hello to you after. Well, he came to find me. I wasn't there. It was slightly embarrassingly. Um, but Sterling, Sterling being Sterling, he, you know, a man with no ego at all. He, he didn't find me. He found Vernon, the mechanic. Um, and, you know, Vernon was absolutely as good as me as someone to talk to about racing cars. So he sat in a pile of tyres and gassed with Vernon until I turned up. And I would be coming back and there was Sterling Moss just sitting there, sitting on a pile of tires, chatting to Vernon about stuff, you know, having come over just to, <clears throat> I mean, not congratulate me or anything like that, but just to share the joy of having had a bit of a tear up on a track. And it was just, oh, it was magical. Absolutely magical. So a hero to you, professionally very helpful to you, but you're, you're one of a a relatively small number of people, Andrew, who can actually tell us what Sterling Moss was like as a bloke. I mean, we're all flawed human beings. I'm sure he had his flaws. But can you tell us what Sterling Moss, the man, was like? Yeah, he, he, was, he, was, a, he was a very flawed person. Um, he was notoriously impatient. Um, you know, he was whatever the opposite of PC, that was Sterling. He was, you know, he was, I think the phrase is, of his generation. He was, you know, quite unreconstructed in, in, in a lot of his views. Um, and, you know, and you kind of had to just, you know, either accept that or, or, or not as you chose. And, you know, and I obviously, you know, chose that I would, um, because, you know, what I saw as I got to know him was that beneath this sometimes gruff exterior, um, was the most incredibly sweet man. Um, his, his warmth and his compassion and his kindness and his, his humor more than anything else is what I will remember for the rest of my days. He was an immensely funny bloke. Um, you know, funny 
in the right circumstances. I can remember, when was it? It would have been 2012, so the 60th anniversary of him and Norman Dewis doing the Miller Miller in a C-type Jaguar. It's actually the race in which they proved the concept of the disc brake, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, um, I took, um, with some others, um, Sterling and Norman back to Brescia to celebrate this um, this occasion. And you can imagine they were the talk of the town. And, you know, every time they appeared in public, um, you know, cameras would be in his face, microphones would be up his nose. And to be honest, he didn't do terribly well in that environment. He he'd get a bit flustered. His memory, you know, after the bang on the head wasn't as good as it could have been. Norman loved all that sort of stuff. He was absolutely in his element. And and Sterling would largely defer to Norman um, and was clearly something of a fish out of water. And then later on, when it was just four or five of you around a table and, you know, in the hotel bar or whatever, he'd just be this totally other person, this incredibly charming funny relaxed um i mean just the best company in the world um and really as much as anything else it's those moments with sterling that i I will cherish the most because because i guess it's because those are the moments when you feel you're actually seeing the real bloke you're not seeing sterling moss the racing driver you're not seeing sterling moss the brand ambassador you're seeing sterling moss and that's yeah immensely special you you were very fortunate, Andrew, to race against him on circuit. But I just wonder if you ever shared a road car with him. Yes, driving. yeah, a few times. Yeah, more times than than I wanted to, to be <laughs> honest. Um, I mean, I'd love to be able to sit here and go, oh yeah, it's some wonderful stories about you know Sterling opposite locking it through the Brecon Beacons or whatever. Uh, my, my experience of being in a Sterling with Sterling in a car, but my memories is is, is largely being terrified and when I wasn't terrified being slightly embarrassed Sterling wasn't he wasn't great in traffic um heavy traffic and because he lived in the middle of London you couldn't go anywhere with with Sterling uh, without being in heavy traffic we had years back we had a deal there was a magazine Orient Express magazine and he had a column in it which I ghosted for him and the deal was I'd turn up at Shepherd Street once a quarter in some interesting car we'd go for a drive he'd talk to me I'd record the conversation I'd write the story and we'd split the fee um and so that's why I spent a lot of time in road cars with Sterling, um, usually in traffic jams. Um, and yeah, it didn't bring out the best of the boy, to be honest. But, um, you know, we all have our flaws and um, and everybody put up with it. I don't know whether somehow they kind of um, knew that this was some special bloke. But nobody, despite the fact that he was, you know, really fairly impatient with other road users. I don't, I don't remember him ever getting any rude signs or anything else. He just sort of serenely carried on his way. <laughs> what did he make of the road cars that you took uh, took him to have a look at? Um, it varied. Um, he was, you know, because to be honest, he wasn't that current on a lot of the stuff um, that was out there. He didn't really know what to compare it, uh, a lot of it to. So, I mean, he would take a bit of a steer from me on that because I obviously was in and out of everything. Um, but he, the thing about Sterling was he, he just, you know, he loved cars. It's like he loved motor racing. You know, he... He would, I don't imagine that Sterling ever missed um, a Formula One race. You know, he was, you know, if you wanted to talk, I can remember Alonso back in his really, really early days. I think he was in a Minardi and he got massively criticised because there was some accident, maybe at Interlagos, and he was the only person who didn't lift. Um, And he went on and he had a massive accident himself and everybody was okay. And I can remember saying to Sterling, you know, what do you think of that? Weren't, didn't, weren't you appalled um, by his behaviour? Sterling looked at me and he said, no, I thought future world champion. He backed himself. He just thought, 
I can deal with this. And okay, it turned out he was wrong. But Sterling saw that confidence. Sterling saw that commitment and thought, well, champion. And guess what? He was absolutely right. We've spoken a little bit about how adaptable he was. Um, He could transfer his skill into all sorts of different machinery and different disciplines as well. He was a skilled rally driver, for instance. Second on Rally Monte Carlo in 1952. Second overall, that is. Um, One of the more curious episodes in his career, though, Andrew, came in the very early 80s when he had a go in the British Touring Car Championship with Audi. What can you tell us about that? Uh, I can tell you that it's the one thing in his career Sterling bitterly regretted doing. Um, So it was uh, an Audi 80 BTCC drive. Um, You know, Sterling had three things, well, four things going against him. One was that he was 50 years old. Two was that he hadn't raced competitively for 18 years. Three was the the car was front-wheel drive, which he'd never driven before. Four was the car was on slicks, which he'd never driven on before. So, I mean, I'm sure that if he'd, you know, had his time again and looked at it in those terms, he would have realised that, you know, he was on a hiding to nothing. And and to be honest, that's how it turned out. You know, it, it wasn't a very... Oh, it wasn't in, in any way a pleasant experience for him. Um, you know, he was, you know, down the back, uh, I think made worse by the fact that his teammate was some bloke called Martin Brundle. Um, and we all know how good he turned out to be. Um, and you know, it was a very, very difficult experience for him. Just once there was one race. It, I wish I could remember all the details. I know it was a Brands Hatch. Um, and I know more than anything that it rained. And for on just that one occasion, Sterling found himself on a tyre that he understood. Um, and, you know, he'd started way down the back. And by the time the car broke, as it frequently did, I think he was third. He basically carved through the entire field. And people were thinking, well, hang on, who's this bloke? You know, suddenly the old guy at the back has learned how to drive. And suddenly he was Sterling Moss again. Um, I remember seeing it at a Goodwood Revival too. Um, when Sterling was really quite old. He was in a Maserati 250F, and on the Saturday, he'd qualified it down the back. Um, and every, you know, which was where you would expect Sterling to be because he was an old bloke by then. Um, and and back, you know, as you know, in the revival, you have proper hotshot racing drivers. And then on race day, um, it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. And people were pinging off left, right, and centre. Sterling just seemed to be on a different track to everyone else. Um, and you know he just didn't have enough laps you know I think he'd started something like I don't know 14th or 15th and he was up to third or second um, by the time he just ran out of, ran out of laps but if it'd be if, it, if it, the race had been another couple of laps longer he'd have won it. Can you tell us a little bit now about the void that he leaves behind maybe from a personal point of view but also from the point of view of motorsport as a whole? Yeah it's interesting in motorsport because there aren't people like Sterling out there anymore, you know, um, they're all very, very different animals. You know, Formula One isn't going to change because Sterling Moss um, is no longer with us. Um, you know, I think that there will be a lot of heartfelt things said about him. You know, there already have. Um, you know, Lewis, I know, um, revered the bloke. Um, but, you know, the world goes on. And, you know, the truth is, apart from the unfortunate Audi experience, um, you know, it's almost 60 years since Sterling Moss raced a car professionally, um, which is, you know, the thick end of a lifetime to most people. So in that regard, um, the void is not that big. But I think to those of us who regard racing as 
a as a philosophy as an approach almost as a romantic thing um the way sterling went racing um how incredibly proper he was in his conduct um inside and outside a racing car um i don't think you you cannot feel a sense of loss that probably frankly our greatest connection to that time um has now has now gone um and you know i i i guess it just for me it just comes back to just this sense of the most immense good fortune to have been able to you know download him um on a number of occasions about you know ab- about those times because in in my me and my head lives in 2020 as as all of us must but my my heart lives you know in the in in the 50s and 60s early 60s before i was born um you know when sterling moss ruled the world he leaves behind his wife lady susie and two grown-up children um andrew i saw you describe lady susie as his greatest ever teammate it would be criminal really to close off this podcast without a word for her so what can you tell us about her oh Susie she's um she is absolutely brilliant I mean a just a superb a superb person um yeah I I said she was Sterling's greatest teammate in a tweet to Martin Brundle without realizing at the time of course that Martin had been Sterling's teammate but (laughs) um, Martin of all people will understand exactly what I mean um she was his rock uh, in every possible way. Um, the support, the mental, emotional, social, professional person, I mean, every way you can measure it. Um, she was the person who just made it all happen for Sterling. Um, you know, Sterling Moss was an amazing person, but certainly for the 40 years that they were married, um, you know, Susie's role in that you know cannot be underestimated um she was his manager um she um did everything for him um and you know and 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 on top of that she is one of the warmest funniest lovely people you could ever wish to meet I mean and you know I can I can remember there was we're doing some race at spa um and it was all over and I went up to the hospitality unit to say goodbye to um the, the, the chap who ran the um the race team that I'd been I'd been driving for. And um they were clearing out the hospitality and I noticed this lady um with a black bin liner going around picking up litter off the ground. And I thought I thought, hang on, I recognise her. And it was Susie. Mm. She was just wow. picking up rubbish in the hospitality suite because that was a job that needed doing, so she'd do it. And that's the kind of person Susie is. She's like Sterling. She had no ego, um, no airs, no graces, just an immensely warm, funny, lovely person um, who was Sterling's, you know, right arm, left arm, rock, whatever you want to call it, um, for the last 40 years of his life. And as I say, you know, her role in his life cannot be underestimated. She sounds like a wonderful person. Um, I have only one Sterling Moss memory to share with you, Andrew, and this was several years ago now, I think maybe 2011, 2012. Um, Reasonably soon after, Sterling fell down um, his lift shaft at home and injured himself quite badly. Um, And I was at the good... uh, I was at... No, it was the Silverstone Classic, and I remember being stood in the pit lane watching Sterling being wheeled up in a wheelchair, um, still with bandages around his ankles, and he very gingerly 
lifted himself out of the wheelchair into a 50s Grand Prix car and then went tearing out of the pit lane like he was 24 again. And it was, it was wonderful to watch. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, people talk about the accident he had at Spa where he broke his back and obviously the, the Goodwood accident. But I think actually, I think, I, I think Sterling's greatest Houdini moment um, probably was the lift shaft incident because he, I think he was 80 when he went down. He went down a lift shaft. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I've been in Sterling's house a few times and I know just how far he fell. I mean, it was a long way and he did terrible damage to his um to his ankles and his heels and and i can remember um he was in the hospital and i can remember thinking to myself well you know fair enough um you know i I, i'm sure you'll get better it's obviously going to take you know an awful lot of time but you know clearly you're never going to drive another car let alone demonstrate a racing car let alone actually race one and he did he did. I mean, you know, at the age of you know eighty-one, he was back in his Oscar and he was racing it, having been down the lift shot. I mean, they just there is some weird material they made that man out of, which you know just, just the rest of us have not been able to enjoy. He was, well, you know, I I, I thought he was indestructible, and 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 over the last two years that he's been, you know, that he has been, you know, fairly bedbound. You know, there was always just that maybe even. You know, Sterling will find a way of beating this one too, but 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 very sadly, not this time. What a remarkable guy he was, um, and actually a real privilege and great fun, Andrew, to hear you talk about him, the racing driver, but more importantly, uh, him, the man. Can you, just to close this off now, how will you remember Sir Sterling Moss? Oh gosh, on so many levels. Um, I think I only really. I mean, we all know what a hero is. We all know it's the most overused word in the dictionary. But there are, you know, there are proper heroes. There are guys who sort of go out in minefields and earn Victoria Crosses. And there's that kind of heroes. And then there's the sort of personal hero. And I think, to be honest, I've only ever had two. One was Ayrton Senna and the other was Sterling Moss. Um, And he was a hero to me absolutely not because he was quick on a racing car. He was a hero to me because, not because of you know what he won but uh, you know and and the cars that he raced but how he went racing he to me he embodied all that was great about racing all that made me fall in love with racing um he was an incredible driver but he was an incredibly correct driver as well um and just a role model the role model of role models um and then when i got to know him the best of blokes as well um and i feel incredibly proud privileged and lucky um to have been able to spend any time with him let alone to race with him let alone to laugh with him um blessed is the word the only word i can think of to tell you how i feel about having known sterling yeah well listen thank you so much for sharing um i've really enjoyed listening i hope all of you listening enjoyed that too um please remember to leave some feedback where you can subscribe uh to the drive nation podcast wherever you get your podcasts um we'll be back soon to to bring you more podcasts um but andrew i hope i hope that was okay for you to to talk about sir sterling moss that way so soon after he passed away yeah i do worry about it a bit dan um because it's all still fairly recent and all, all fairly raw and there'll be lots of people who knew sterling you know some of them you know much better than me um who will be grieving a lot but i think you know 
please let's not remember the last two years. Let's remember the, the 88 before that, the 88 great years that man had. Um, because he was a truly great and wonderful person and his life is one of all to be celebrated. And I hope that's, you know, in the last however long we've been chatting, that's what we've been able to do because goodness knows that's what Sterling would have wanted us to do. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 